Well, we are in the last half of Matthew chapter 13 today, uh, as Jesus is going to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like to us, and that can be found on page number 1518. And as I've done before, because this is a long passage again, I'm just going to read a representative sample uh, for us this morning before the sermon, uh, just for time's sake. So we're going to be looking at uh, verses 31 to 35 uh, out of the passage this morning. Again, that's page number 1518, and we'll read verses 31 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, as always, need your spirit to take your word and to open up our hearts and minds that we might understand it and apply it to our lives. We ask again this morning, God, uh, as beggars who deeply need your grace, to speak to us this morning and to open up your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are a lot of opinions out there uh, about what's wrong with the world and what we ought to do to fix it. Uh, some Christians would say uh, that what we need is a Christian society with Christian laws taken from Scripture or using principles derived from Scripture, and that that would produce the most just society. And they say that this would happen because it would line up with reality. God's already told us the best way to live and it would be good for everyone, even if they're not believers, to live this way, even uh, if the government has to compel them to do so. Others say the best of society would be a pluralistic, liberal, democratic society with religious freedom. That kind of society is best equipped to deal with the world as it really is, a world that consists of believers and non-believers and this way, everyone would be free. Uh, the government wouldn't be marginalizing non-believers, but they would be free to contribute uh, to the flourishing of society. Others say the problem is all about power and economics. Those with the money need to be forced or even coerced to share with the poor and the marginalized. And it's our responsibility as citizens to set up and empower and promote a government willing and able to give every citizen an equal share of the benefits of our society. And here's what's amazing to me. There are Christians, sincere believers in Jesus Christ, 
who take each one of those perspectives. And when Jesus walked the earth, it was exactly the same. There were divisions among Jews about how to deal with the political problems of their day, which pretty much entirely consisted in what to do about the Romans who were occupying Israel. Some thought rebellion and violence was needed. Others thought it was best to submit to the Roman government, and still others even aligned themselves with the Romans. But every Jew was waiting for the Messiah. Every Jew was waiting for the son of David to come, to rescue them, to conquer the Romans, and to make everything right. And now Matthew tells us that Jesus is here. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the Messiah. But he's not here setting up a political kingdom to conquer the Romans and restore David's throne on this small little plot of land in Palestine. He's come to save his people from their sins, restore the earth, and set up an eternal kingdom. But it's kind of like when you take medicine and you have to wait 30 minutes before the medicine actually begins to take effect. When Jesus came the first time, he gave us the medicine that we needed. He died on the cross to deal with our sin and our guilt, and then he rose again, conquering sin and death, so that we could have confidence that our sins are forgiven and we have the hope of heaven. And now we're in this long period of time as we wait for that medicine to take its full effect. Jesus has brought in the kingdom of heaven. He's brought God's rule and God's reign, his power and his protection and his authority. It's already here for those who enter the kingdom. But it's not yet fully here. Theologians refer to this as the already but not yet aspects of the kingdom of heaven. And in our passage today, Jesus is teaching the crowds and his disciples and us what the kingdom will be like in between his first coming, after he's given us the medicine, and his second coming, when that medicine will take its full effect. So regardless of the political solutions we prefer, Jesus wants us to think rightly about what's wrong with the world, and he wants to give us proper expectations about what can be done about it between that time and the past and that time in the future when he returns. So instead of giving you an outline beforehand this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at each parable as Jesus teaches us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And as we do, our understanding will grow and grow. So the first thing we learn about what the kingdom is like, as it's already here but not yet fully here, is that the kingdom is impure. The kingdom is impure. See, everybody wants a perfect church. Everybody wants a perfect society. But Jesus assures us that will not be the case until he comes again. So no matter what we do to fix what's wrong with the world, it's always going to be impure. So Jesus tells us another parable about a man who sows wheat in a field. Now, later in this passage, Jesus is going to interpret this parable for us, but there's a couple of things I wanna note before we look at the parable and its interpretation. So first, 
Uh, this parable comes right after the parable of the sower that we looked at last week. And in that parable, we saw that the seed was the message about the kingdom. It's, it's the gospel. It's the good news. And the soil represented how different people would respond to that message. Some would ignore it. Others would receive it with joy, but then they would fall away. Others would believe it, but they would be distracted by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and so they would not produce any fruit. But finally, there was great hope because there's this other group who will hear it, truly believe it, and produce fruit, and that's the fruit of faith and righteousness. And if that parable is true, which of course it is, it means that there will be a time when the kingdom of heaven is real and available, right? The message is going out, the seeds, the seeds are being scattered, and at the same time, there will be people rejecting it, some right away, others eventually, because the kingdom is already, right? The medicine's been administered, but not yet. It hasn't taken full effect. So even in our parable from last week, we saw that the kingdom of heaven is impure. Now the Jewish people and Jesus' disciples, they had no concept of a kingdom that's impure. They thought the Messiah was going to return, set up his rule and reign. It was going to be visible. It was going to be powerful. And it was going to be complete. And so, right on the heels of the parable of the sower, Jesus is back out now with the crowds. And he tells them this parable about the wheat, where a man sows wheat in a field. And then when everybody's asleep, an enemy comes and sows weeds. And the weeds here are a specific kind of plant called darnel. And when darnel first sprouts, apparently it looks just like wheat. In fact, it's not until the wheat starts producing heads of grain that you can actually tell the difference, which is why in verse 26, Jesus says, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And when the weeds appear, the servants want to know, well, should we pull out the weeds? But the owner replies, no, because while you're pulling out the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. This is because what Darnell does is it intertwines with the root of the wheat. And so if you're ever going to pull up the Darnell, there's no way to pull it up without also uprooting the wheat. So the owner of the field says, let both grow together and tell the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat into my barn. Now the harvest is an Old Testament picture of the end of the age, as we'll see later when Jesus interprets the parable. So after this parable, Jesus tells a couple more parables, which we'll come back to in a minute, and then we read this. He says, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So the first thing Jesus does is he lines up all the characters in this parable for us. He says that the owner is the one who sows the good seed, the field is the world. 
And some of you may have already noticed and gotten confused by the fact that, well, last week we saw that there was a a sower out sowing into a field, and he was sowing seed, and that seed was the good news of the kingdom. But Jesus takes this parable, and he kind of switches up the characters. He uses the same imagery, but he applies different meanings to all those images. Um, So this week, or so last week, the sower was uh, sowing the message of the kingdom, But here the good seed is the people of the kingdom. And there's also bad seed now, which last week there was no bad seed. And the bad seed is the people of the evil one. And the parable of the sower of the evil one was like a bird who who came and ate the seed off the path and uh, the field, um, sorry, ate the the seed off the path. And in this parable, he's planting seed in a field. And the parable of the sower, there was good soil and bad soil, but here there's a field and the field is the whole world. So it's hard to keep all this straight. But um, the best way to think about it is he takes the seed, and and the most important distinction is now the seed is not the good news of the kingdom, but the seed is the people of the kingdom or the people of the evil one, okay? So the the sower who owns the field is sowing the people of the kingdom. The devil is coming, and he's sowing the evil people in the kingdom. And those are the darnel, those are the weeds, and the good people are the wheat, and they're growing up together. Are you with me? Okay, just making sure, okay? Uh, so Jesus goes on, and he says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So you see, it's not until the end of the age where the weeds are removed. The people of the kingdom are going to grow up with the people of the evil one all the way until the end. What this means is everything good in this world has weeds growing in it. Everything good in this world has weeds growing in it. Even the church and every government and every institution. And all we have to do is look back in history to see this is true. Right? At the founding of America, which I believe was a good thing, I believe we have a wonderful country and a wonderful constitution, but But at the founding of America, we said that black people were three-fifths of a person. Something that everyone is ashamed of now. And things are no better now. Just this past week, 210 members of Congress voted not to allow doctors to care for children born alive after an abortion. I hope we are just as ashamed of that in 200 years. Our society values movie stars, sports heroes, and stockholders more than we value teachers, the homeless, orphans, or refugees. And all we have to do is look at where the money goes to know that's true. And I don't know the best solution to all of that. But my point is Jesus' point. Everything good in this world has weeds growing on it. And it's not hard to see the weeds. It always has been like this. It always will be like this. 
That doesn't mean we're not supposed to seek justice and mercy. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to work hard to build good institutions. But when we build those institutions, we cannot be shocked when we find weeds in them. It's just the way things are. That's how we ended up with the Crusades and the Salem Witch Trials. But Jesus' caution for us here is that if we get all self-righteous, thinking that somehow we know better and that we can come and we can pull out all the weeds and make something pure, what we'll do is we'll end up taking the wheat out with it. Better to let them all grow up together until the one who is truly qualified to judge returns. Which means, most of the time, political revolution is usually not a good idea. Because A, a corrupt government is better than no government, and B, revolutionaries usually don't have a better idea how to set up a government than the one they're taking down. Change happens slowly, over time, by scattering the good news of the kingdom. As citizens of the kingdom, our job is to scatter the message of the kingdom, and as we make disciples of all nations, hearts will change, and they'll produce fruit of the kingdom. And there's an application for the church here too. There will be weeds among the wheat in every congregation. And sometimes it can be tempting to try to figure out, well, who, who are the wheat and who are the weeds? Better to encourage the wheat with the gospel than scare the weeds into trying to realize their weeds. The next thing this passage teaches us is that the kingdom of heaven starts small but grows to have great influence. So the idea is already present in the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat. The agricultural image itself teaches us that planting seeds is slow progress over time. As we scatter the message of the kingdom, Jesus will cause it to grow and spread. He goes on. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, some people take these two, key, these two parables to mean that one day the kingdom is going to grow so large and so influential that it takes over the whole world and that everything is Christianized. But we have to read these parables with the parable of the wheat. No matter how big or how influential the kingdom becomes, there will always be weeds on everything until Jesus returns. Instead, what Jesus is saying here is simple. The kingdom will start small, and it will grow, and it will have great influence in spite of the fact that weeds are growing on everything. A mustard seed was the smallest known seed in Israel at the time. Yet it grew to become a tree, 8 to 12 feet tall. It was the perfect illustration for Jesus' point. And leaven is what makes bread rise. Without leaven, all of our bread would be like hard little hockey pucks. And all you have to do is mix in just a little bit of leaven, like yeast or baking soda, into dough. And it spreads throughout the whole dough, mysteriously. I don't know how that happens. 
Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to spread throughout and influence the world just like leaven spreads throughout and influences dough. So the parable of the mustard seed tells us the kingdom will get so large that even non-Jews will, become, will be able to come and perch under its shade. Right? Gentiles will become Christians. And the parable of the leaven tells us the kingdom will spread throughout the world and have great influence. And that even though weeds will be on everything, there's going to be a lot of good. And again, just think about Jesus' small band of disciples, how encouraging this would have been for them. Because they were looking around and they weren't seeing themselves with a lot of influence, especially after Jesus died. Now earlier we looked at the weeds of our society. But our country... And all of Western society owes its politics and its art and its culture and its music to the influence of the kingdom of heaven over the last 2,000 years. Can you imagine this world without hospitals and orphanages and missionaries going out and taking the gospel all over the world? And yes, we can point out all the weeds and everything that they did. But the leaven of the gospel has spread throughout the world and has brought so much good. There are a lot of weeds in America and the rest of the Western world, but it is the most prosperous, just society the world has ever known. So taking all these parables together, we see that God has a plan for all the good and even all the evil in this world. He's allowing the evil to preserve the good, and at the end of the age, he will send his angels for the harvest. And then Matthew tells us this. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And here Jesus is repeating a point that we made last week. When Jesus teaches in parables, his purpose is to encourage and deepen the understanding of believers and to judge and confuse non-believers. And he quotes Psalm 78 here. Psalm 78 is a psalm where we're told all about how God continues to bring his truth to his people, and yet they continue to rebel and to fall away. But God in his grace and his kindness and his patience continues to bring them the truth. The next thing we learn about what the kingdom is like is that the kingdom is hidden and priceless. Jesus goes on. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So in the first parable, uh, the kingdom is hidden in a field. Now, they didn't have safe deposit boxes back then, so if you wanted to store something in what we might think of as a safe deposit box, literally what they did is they put it in clay pots and they buried it in a field. And some people have criticized this man in this parable because it seems like he's kind of stealing from somebody because he finds this thing in the field and then he goes off and buys the field. Uh, but really, at that time, if you found something in a field... Uh, and it didn't belong to anybody else, it, it was yours to take. And actually him going and buying the field was a way of making sure that nobody had a claim on that treasure anyway. But that actually has nothing to do with Jesus' point. 
Uh, that's just our 21st century mind uh, looking back into this parable and reading our understanding of you know, rights and ownership back into it. Uh, but I mentioned that because literally every commentary had a big section on that trying to explain that to all of us. But Jesus' point in this parable is that the kingdom of heaven is hidden and priceless. The first parable teaches us that sometimes people are not looking for the kingdom and they just stumble across it. I've heard stories, I never heard like an actual story, but I've heard that there are stories, right, of of people um, going into a hotel room, depressed and sad and, you know, stuck in the miserableness of their sin and they, they open up the drawer and there's the Gideon's Bible there. And they start reading it. And they they come to know that Jesus is God and he saved them from their sins. That would be like stumbling across the kingdom. You hear other stories of a a co-worker uh, sharing the gospel with somebody. Uh, I'm reading a book right now with the education committee. And the guy who wrote the story, or sorry, wrote the book, told us a story about how he became a Christian. And he said that he he became a Christian because he went to college and his roommate happened to be a Christian. And he kept inviting him to all these Christian events. And then finally one day he took him to lunch and he got the four spiritual laws out and he was shaking and sweating going through the four spiritual laws with him. And then after he got done going through them, this guy said, yeah, I believe that. I want to be a Christian, right? He just stumbled across the kingdom. That's how it happens sometimes. Somehow he comes across the kingdom. And it's so wonderful to hear that God would send his own son to die for him and rescue him from his sin and misery, give him the hope of heaven. It's so wonderful that it's worth more than all he owns. Now, this doesn't mean we can buy the kingdom. It just means it's more valuable than anything else in this world. The parable of the pearl also tells us that there's nothing more valuable in this life than knowing God and being a citizen of the kingdom, but that sometimes people find it because they've been looking for it. This would be the person who's trying to figure out like what is true, and they go on this long search, and at the end of their search, they realize, yes, Jesus is God, and he died for my sins. Or or this is the person who meets a Christian and thinks, there's something different about that person. I want to figure out why. And they go on a search to figure it out, and they discover the kingdom in the midst of their search. Right? They don't stop looking until they find the answer. Next, the kingdom of heaven is for good fish. Jesus continues. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, So the idea of this parable is very similar in many ways to the parable of the wheat that we looked at earlier. Uh, During this age, the kingdom will be mixed, except instead of there being, you know, wheat and darnel, here we have good fish and bad fish. But the emphasis here is that there will come a time of judgment when all the fish are gathered in and the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. The wicked will be put into the burning furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as we were told earlier, the wheat at that time will shine like the righteous. Now some have suggested that uh, the description of hell here or eternal judgment is a bit harsh and that there's no way that Jesus is being literal. 
And I would actually agree. It's likely that Jesus is not being literal here. Um, it's probably not the case that hell is an actual fiery furnace and that people are going to uh, be weeping and gnashing their teeth inside a fiery furnace. I think that's probably not the case, although I'm open to the possibility that it is. However, what Jesus is saying here is that whatever hell is like, it is at least as bad as it would be to be burning forever in a fiery furnace, weeping and grinding your teeth. That's his point. And so what he's trying to say here is, don't be a bad fish. Don't be a bad fish. Bad fish are the wicked. A bad fish is someone who lives their life by their own rules, for their own pleasure, refusing to turn to Jesus for healing. And the good fish, well, they are the righteous. The good news of the kingdom is that anyone can be a good fish, no matter how sinful they are. Because a good fish is someone who is poor in spirit, which means they know they are a sinner who needs someone else to save them. A good fish is someone who comes to Jesus like a little child for healing. Someone who hears the good news of the kingdom, repents of their sin, and believes. A good fish is someone who has been shown mercy and welcomed into the kingdom where all their sins are forgiven. So be a good fish. Put your trust in Jesus. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Have you understood all these things? Yes, they replied. They probably did not understand all these things. In fact, as we go on in Matthew, it will become clear that there is much they don't yet understand. But the point here is that they believe. They look to Jesus and they trust him. He speaks words and the words that he says make sense to them. It rings true. Right? Can we look at Jesus and say, yes, I accept everything you say as true. Then he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out, his store, who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And the idea here is that if a teacher of the law, right, who have been Jesus' enemies the entire time, right, these are the people who are warring with him, but if a teacher of the law were to believe in Jesus like the disciples have done, he would be like a homeowner, which means he would be a man of great wealth and influence, with access to treasures new as well as old. Someone like a teacher of the law who knows everything written down in the Old Testament, if he were to believe in Jesus and become a disciple of the kingdom, he would be able to connect everything Jesus is saying to the Old Testament. All the new treasures Jesus is revealing would confirm and give greater understanding to the old treasures. And the Apostle Paul really is the ultimate manifestation of what Jesus is talking about here. One of the beauties of the Apostle Paul is he was a trained Pharisee. And so when he did become a Christian, he was able to take everything he learned in the Old Testament. And it was like, uh, it was like having this wonderful picture and that he didn't have the key to get into, right? And then when he be, we came to know Christ as Savior, it unlocked the Old Testament for him. And Paul, in the New Testament, is able to bring forth for us new treasures as well as old. 
But for this to happen, for this level of insight and understanding to take place, the teacher of the law must become a disciple of the kingdom because the kingdom of heaven is hidden unless you find it. Because Christianity, here's the thing about Christianity, friends. It is so much more true from the inside looking out than from the outside looking in. This is why everybody, when they first put their faith in Jesus, right, unless you've grown up in the faith, you, you look at it and you think, oh man, I don't know. I wonder. There's some doubt, there's some hesitancy, right? But when they do decide to say, oh no, I believe, and all of a sudden it's this paradigm shift, right? Well, now all of a sudden they see the world in a different way. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, uh, I'm going to butcher it, but, but something along, I don't know, oh man, totally going to butcher it. Uh, he says the Christianity is like the sun, right? I don't, I don't look at the sun to know it's true, but because of the sun, I can see how everything else is true, right? It, it illumines everything else. Okay, now our final point. The kingdom of heaven is ordinary. The kingdom of heaven is ordinary. So our passage ends with this brief story of Jesus coming to his hometown to teach in a synagogue. And we're told the people were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So Matthew very quickly sets up the scene. Uh, the people in his hometown, they can see his power, they can see his wisdom, but then they say this, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Right, this would be like somebody you know really well trying to convince you that they're really special. You're like, you're not special. I grew up with you. I know you. You're, you're just like me. You're not special. And then if they do amazing, wonderful things and have great wisdom, you're like, okay, sure, okay. I, you're doing something amazing, but, but you're not. You're still the person I grew up with. You're not special. And then you get offended because why are you trying to con convince me that you're special when I know you're not? They were amazed by him, but they couldn't imagine him being anything other than the guy they grew up with. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do any miracles there because of their lack of faith. So the message is amazing. But the package the message comes in is very ordinary. It's very ordinary. It's full of wisdom and power. It's not a revolution. It's not political power. It's not fireworks. It's not awe and wonder. It comes from a friend. It's like a small church gathered on the corner of Orange and Fourth every Sunday coming to hear God's word preached, sing hymns, eat some bread and drink some wine, pray together, encourage one another. It's an impure group of people trying to do good in a world full of weeds, knowing that all of our efforts might start small, but they will have great influence in the world even if we never see it. And our job is actually not to try to change the world. Here's the beauty of these parables. If you, if you look at the way the parables are structured and what they're trying to teach us, it's actually the message of the kingdom that does all the work. Right? The, the seeds are scattered. Some will respond, some won't. 
those who do will produce 30, 60, 100 times more than what was scattered. And so that will go out and that will go out one generation after another, after another, after another. And then those people will go into the world and then Jesus is the, the owner, right? The, he'll come and he'll plant those people wherever he wants, right? They are, they are the people of the kingdom. He'll plant them in this institution, plant them in that institution, plant them in this government, plant them over here, right? And then Satan will come. He's going to plant his people there to, to make it all complicated. And there will be this, this intertwining, right, of the, of the, of the good, good uh, seed and the bad seed all throughout history. But no matter what, you can't stop the kingdom, right? The gates of hell will not pre- uh, prevail against the kingdom, which Jesus will teach us later in Matthew 16. It, it'll grow and it'll grow. It'll mysteriously spread and have influence. People will find it. And when they do, they'll be amazed by it. And yet it'll be ordinary. It'll be easy not to believe. And that's how it will be from now until the end. And so I started this morning asking by, oh, what's wrong with the world and what do we have to do about it, right? I'm not smart enough to know all the different nuances of political solutions to things. But I don't think Jesus is calling each and every Christian to do that. I think he calls some Christians to do that. But I think he's calling each and every Christian to live an ordinary life, to spread the gospel of the kingdom, and to be a good fish, and to watch it all grow. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we're thankful that you're the one who grows your kingdom. You're the one who mysteriously takes your people, spreads us around like leaven in this world to have influence. And then our job is to trust you, to be good fish, to proclaim the kingdom, and to wait for you to do what it is you want to do. Thank you for your grace, for this knowledge, for this understanding that this passage gives us about how we should understand the world as it is from the time you came the first time until you came again, until you come again. And we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.